Last month, we began a new series on the book of Ephesians. And really, Ephesians is kind of Paul's letter about the church. It's kind of his magnum opus to the church. So whereas the book of Romans is the height of Paul's systematic theology, the book of Ephesians is really the height of Paul's message on ecclesiology or issues pertaining to the church. And the way Paul structures it in the book of Ephesians is to really kind of divide it into two sections. Section 1, which is found in chapters 1 through 3, is going to deal heavily with doctrine. He's going to talk a lot about our position as one who is in Christ. He's going to use that phrase a lot. And then the second section, which is found in chapters 4 through 6, is going to deal with our position and our, excuse me, our practice as those who are in Christ. So our devotion so to speak. So chapters 1 through 3, doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6, our devotion. And, um, and this is such a special letter to Ephesus and the church there because this is such a special place in many ways for Paul. If you think back to our study in the book of Acts, you know that Paul spent three years in Ephesus, the longest he spent of any location along his ministry. And so this is a place that is near and dear to his heart. It kind of reminds me of when I talk to some of our military families here at Wayside who have had to move a number of times because of their association with the military. And I'll ask them about all the places they've lived. And they typically respond by saying, you know, we tried to make the most out of every place we moved to. We tried to make the best out of every situation. But there's typically one spot that just really resonates with their heart. Whether it's because the length of time they were there, the relationships they had, or the life experience that took place while in that one spot, there's one city or one location that stands out above the rest. And that's why they retire to San Antonio when they're done. (laughs) Right? And so Paul begins this letter with a heavy emphasis on doctrine. And this heavy emphasis on doctrine begins by Paul looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. Trinity. And when you think about the Trinity, this is really the distinguishing and distinctive doctrine of our faith. There are other religions that are monotheistic. There are other religions that worship one God. Islam worships one God. Judaism is a one God religion. And and so are we as Christians. But what makes us distinct is that within that one God, we believe God is tri-personal. We believe that he eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a topic that's pretty dear to me, and I like talking about it. As you recall, last summer, Roger came to me and said, Michael, I want you to preach a four-week sermon series on whatever you choose. And I said, well, I want to preach on the Trinity. And as we went through that series, you remember we defined the Trinity this way. We said, we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. And so there is a unity to the Godhead. There is a unity to God, a unity of essence, of his divine nature, of relationship, where we can honestly and accurately describe God as being one. And yet there is diversity within the Godhead. A diversity of persons is the best word we can use to describe it, where we can also speak of God as existing in three, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is, without question, a tension. No doubt. 
But it's a tension that we reside in and that we commit to because of the person and work of Jesus Christ and because of the revelation of the Holy Scriptures. And so we say amen to that tension. Because if we lose that tension and move too far one way or too far the other way, then we denounce the revelation of Scripture, we deny the historic faith of Christianity, and we lose the heart of our faith. And so we believe in one God, eternally existing as three persons, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. And that harmony, that distinction of function can best be seen, can most clearly be seen when looking at God's great work of salvation, a work that is Trinitarian. And this is exactly where Paul begins at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 in this doxology of praise as he identifies the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you think back through past messages, Paul starts with God the Father. And this is found in verses 3 through 5 of Ephesians. And he talks about how the Father's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ through an election that predates creation. And that in the pureness of God's love, he predestined those he chose to be adopted as sons and daughters in this great mystery. And this blessing that, that the God the Father planned was provided by God the Son. And so Paul logically moves now from the work of the Father in verses 3 through 5 to the work of the Son in verses 7 through 12. And the work of the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is a work where we have been redeemed by his blood, Paul says, that we have forgiveness of sins. It's a work that was always part of God's predetermined plan. And so now from the Father to the Son, he comes to the Holy Spirit. And we find this in verses 13 and 14. And this is where we come to this morning. And Paul writes, In him, being Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, when it comes to the work of the Trinity and the work of, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in salvation, the one that is the most mysterious and therefore oftentimes the most confusing is the Holy Spirit. And so this confusion about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit often leads to a sense of disappointment, kind of disconnect, frustration, and even anger amongst people. But the problem is not the Holy Spirit himself. The problem is our understanding or even our expectations of the Holy Spirit. I remember my first week at uh, Texas A&M. Uh, kind of a rough day yesterday. It's all right. We're good. Sun came up. It's just football, guys. Don't take it too seriously, all right? So anyways, <laughs> I was my first week at A&M, and uh, I was pretty clueless. This just seems to be a common thread through many instances in my life, and uh, I transferred there as a junior, and so I wasn't living on campus. I didn't really know many people, uh, and I was too prideful to ask questions, but it's a few days out from the beginning of school, and I needed to get online to take care of some unfinished business, but this is back in the dark ages. Like, this is 2002, people, all right? I don't have a cell phone, 
and I don't have a personal computer at this time. So I've got to go somewhere where I can get on the internet. And so I think to myself, library. Unfortunately, I'd never been to the library at A&M. And that place, that campus is the size of a small country, right? And so I think through, okay, I remember when I drove in that I drove by the library. So I get in my car and I drive over to the library and I get out and I start walking into the library. And I'm a little bit confused because everybody going into the library is a little bit older than me. Like they may have been college students at some point, but probably not in this century. All right? But I'm like, it's cool. Aggies embrace their past. Whatever, you know? And so I get up close to the door, though, and there's a metal detector. And there's a guy with a weapon. And I'm like, Dude, these Aggies are for real. I mean, <laughs> they care about their books. I mean, it's no joke. But I'm like, hey, it's whatever. You know, it's cool. I'm get, I'll get used to it. And so as soon as I walk in, I find the first person. I say, yeah, hey, uh, where's the, uh, I need to go to the computer lab. I got to get online. And the guy says, uh, excuse me? I say, where are the computers at, bro? And he says, I was a lot more kind, I promise. And he says, uh, yeah, we don't have computers here. I say, you don't have computers? What kind of library is this? I said, son, this is the Bush Presidential Library. <laughs> You know those moments in life where you, you really question whether you're going to make it, like whether you have what it takes, you know? That was a moment for me when the guy's like, this is a museum. It's a presidential museum. It's not that kind of library, son. And I was a history major. I mean, this is it just... So... Uh, So I turned around, and I walked out pretty much, like, humiliated and angry that they still didn't have any computers. <laughs> but, you know, in the midst of my anger and my embarrassment, one of the things I failed to realize was this, is that the Bush Library is one of the most magnificent places on that campus. It's an amazing place. And it didn't have what I wanted or thought that I wanted, but it had more than I could have possibly imagined. There was more things there than I could have possibly imagined. And I feel like I meet many people who have a similar experience when it comes to the Holy Spirit. They, they don't know what to expect from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they expect the wrong thing. And because of that, they end up embittered or angry, not realizing the incredible ministry the Holy Spirit has already had in the lives of believers and continues to have throughout the course of their life. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning in a, in a brief amount of time, is I want to look at four essential ministries of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And so we could talk about a number of things the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's writing of the Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit's activity in creation, the Holy Spirit in the incarnation. I mean, there's no shortage of things we could explore. But I want to take a few minutes and just look at the four significant ministries that the Holy Spirit has done in us and for us in salvation. Because it's just magnificent. It's really magnificent. And the first of these is what's known as the ministry of regeneration. Regeneration. 
Now, the Greek word that regeneration comes from just is, is to be reborn. It's, it means rebirth. So when you think or when you hear regeneration, I want you to think be born again. This is being born again. This is having, being born of the spirit, having a spiritual birth. So when somebody hears the gospel of salvation, the message of truth, the message that Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures, and that Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, when somebody believes that, they, by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, become regenerate. They are born again. They experience a spiritual birth. And Jesus speaks to this in a famous interaction in John chapter 3. Under the cover of night, Jesus bumps into one of the Pharisees of the day, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And they have a deep theological conversation. This is what happens in John 3. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he tells, he tells Nicodemus, you have to be reborn. There's got to be a second birth if you want to have any, any kind of presence, any kind of attendance. Any kind, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to be regenerated. And so Nicodemus is confused. And he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter in a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And Jesus responds by saying, unless one is born of water the cleansing work of the Spirit, and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. That's the reality of the teaching. And when a person who is elect by the Father's choosing believes upon the work of the person of Jesus Christ our Lord, they are then born of the Spirit and become a child of God. They experience a newness of life, a new identity. Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away and new things have come because they have been born again. So there's a newness of life that comes, as a, that comes as a result of a spiritual birth that's brought about by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of regeneration. The second work of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation is baptism. Baptism. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit. You experience the Holy Spirit baptism. Now, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think the best way to understand baptism of the Holy Spirit is it's when the Spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and therefore in union with all the others, brothers and sisters, who have done the same. So it's when the Spirit of God takes you and you are out of Christ, you are unregenerate, and it places you in the body of Christ, where you are now in Christ, you are in union with Christ, you have been identified with Christ, and now you're in the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. You are part of his body, his church, and that's a result of the Holy Spirit. And we see Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, for even as the body is one... 
and yet has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So essentially, what the spirit does through baptism is it accomplishes two things. It brings you into union with Christ. So Christ has done the work, but we're still separated. But the Spirit baptizes us into Christ. So now we receive the blessings of Christ. We are in Christ's family, which is also called his church. And so when you think of church, you really shouldn't think of four walls or Sunday morning or some preacher up here. The church is comprised of all those who have been baptized into Christ, okay, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's certainly some disagreement amongst denominations within Christianity about whether the baptism of the Holy Spirit can be multiple, whether you can have multiple baptisms. I say that you cannot, okay? So my stance is that you, there's one Holy Spirit baptism where you are baptized into Christ, and then you may be filled with the Spirit. You may be filled with the Spirit, but there is one baptism where the Spirit places you into the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Spirit regenerates, giving the believer a new life, and the Spirit baptizes, giving the believer a new family, a new position, a new identity as one who is in Christ. And not only then, thirdly, has the Holy Spirit baptized the believer into Christ, but the Holy Spirit has also come to take residence in the believer. And this is called the ministry of indwelling. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the first installment of a payment. This is a pledge. We see this in Ephesians verse 13. This is what it says. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence is a pledge. It's a down payment. It's a first installment with more to come. It's, it's, it's equivalent of an engagement ring, though God never calls off the wedding. It's him saying, here's the first payment, and I promise you there's more to come. I promise you there's more to come. God has given us of himself as a pledge and promise that he will complete what he began, namely our salvation. When you think about our salvation, we've talked about this before, you can really kind of think of it in three tenses. You have been saved, past tense. You have been justified. You are sealed by the work of the Holy Spirit. You are being saved. This is the present tense of salvation. This is the sanctification where the indwelling spirit in you conforms you to the image of Christ, chiseling away at the rough spots in you and working on us. So that is a present salvation. You're being saved, and then you will be saved. And Paul says that right here, that there's a future aspect to our salvation where sin will be no more. And we can bank on that because we have the Holy Spirit as God's pledge that he will follow through on his promise. The indwelling spirit is that proof. 
And this indwelling of the Holy Spirit is such a profound truth on so many levels. So, I mean, I just want us to think about this for a second. If you have come to faith in the gospel, the message of truth, you have experienced a new birth, you have been baptized into Christ, and the very Spirit of God resides in you. He resides in you. And Jesus speaks to this with the disciples on, in John chapter 14, in the upper room discourse, as he's teaching them about the Holy Spirit, chapters 14 through 17. But this is what he says in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a helper of the same kind, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Another name for the Holy Spirit. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Paul speaks to the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. The scriptures teach this remarkable and unthinkable reality that as believers, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God. And yet, how many of us fail to acknowledge his permanent indwelling presence, fail to access his supernatural power, and thus fail to live the life that God has called us to live, a life where we walk by the Spirit? Unfortunately, I I so oftentimes see Christians who walk around with defeatist attitudes. Defeatist attitudes, which kind of ping-pong back and forth between self-pity and self-hate. It's as if we walk out on the field of life, which to me is a football field, but it's as if we walk out onto the field of life and we look at our opponent And we think to ourselves, I can't win. I can't win. I mean, look at my flesh. Look at my sin. Look at my past. Look at my upbringing. Look at my addictions. I can't win. The opposition is just too strong. They're too strong. They're too fast. And they're too big. All the while right next to you, dressed in the same uniform as you, is the greatest one who's ever played. He's the best of all time. And he's on your team. And he's playing for you. And he's playing through you. And he has got your back. But we fail to recognize that. And if we would just recognize who is with us and in us and for us, I think we would live in a dramatically different way. I think we would live in a dramatically different way if we really embraced this reality. And I know that life is hard. I mean, life is hard. And the battle is real. And the opposition is no joke. And the flesh is strong, and I give in to my flesh more than I care to admit. 
But how many of us fail to live the victorious life God has called us to live because it never occurs to us that we might actually be able to do it? We just focus on sin, 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 and sin is real, but so is the spirit that lives in you. And we fail to embrace the reality that we can do it by God's power and his grace. That's a powerful, powerful truth. And, And Paul speaks to this in Romans 8. It's one of the great passages in scripture. This is right after he's talked about his sin in Romans 7. And look what he says here starting in verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. Not under obligation to the flesh. Not under obligation to live according to the flesh. No, sir. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If the spirit you are putting to, by, by, but if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Wow. If you are in Christ, you've received an upgrade. This is spiritual life 2.0. And in this new upgrade, with this new software functioning, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer obligated to live according to the flesh, but you are a child of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered to live the life that is pleasing to God. So use your new software. Embrace your position as one who's in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit regenerates the believer, giving them new life, baptizes the believer, placing them in Christ, and indwells the believer as a pledge and a promise and as the power to live the spiritual life. And then fourthly and lastly, the Holy Spirit seals the believer. Seals the believer. Back in verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed. Now, what does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? It means that God has marked that person as belonging to him. That person has his seal of approval. It has his seal of ownership upon him. At the time Paul wrote, a seal might have looked something like this on the slide right here. I don't know why there's five keys there, okay? Just focus on the seal. (laughs) And that seal was made through a process of pressing a symbol or an initial into heated wax. And that symbol would then indicate who the owner was. Who the owner was. So the seal provided security, it provided authenticity and approval, it provided genuineness, and it provided the proof of ownership. It was the owner letting everyone know, this is from me, this belongs to me, and this is my seal of approval. So you can trust it, and you can trust that it's from me. 
And so when you think about the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, it's God's mark on those who belong to him. It's him saying, they're mine. They belong to me. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the seal of God on the believer is the indwelling spirit of God in the believer. So the seal of God on the believer is the indwelling spirit of God in the believer. The spirit himself is the seal. And all who have the spirit have been sealed. And they've been sealed for all eternity. You see, the seal is not based upon your church attendance. It's not based upon how many cuss words you've said in your life. It's not based upon how good of a mother you are or how good of a husband you've been. And those are great things. But that's not what your seal is dependent upon. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. And here's why. It wasn't you who secured it. It wasn't you who purchased you. And that's Paul's point in Ephesians 1. Do you see it? Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't lose your salvation because God was the one that secured your salvation. And it's not based on our power, but it's based on God's promise. And it's not based upon my intellect or my merit, but on God's infinite grace. John Piper writes words on the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He says this, God sends the Holy Spirit as a preserving seal to lock in our faith, as an authenticating seal to validate our sonship, and as a protective seal to keep out destructive forces. The point is that God wants us to feel secure and safe in his love and his power. It is a magnificent truth, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So four ministries of the Holy Spirit that are accomplished at the moment of salvation, when you believe upon the gospel of truth, you are regenerated, you are born again. You are baptized by the Spirit where you were once out of Christ and you've been placed in Christ and as part of the body of Christ. You are indwelt by the Spirit, which is a pledge that he will finish what he began and which empowers us to live the life he's called us to live. And then lastly, you are sealed by the Spirit where God says, you are mine forevermore. And nothing will change that. And I think it's important to note that these four ministries of the Holy Spirit in and for the child of God are not necessarily related to something you experience. You with me? You came to faith and you didn't go, I feel regenerated. This is great. You didn't feel the baptism per se. Christ, I mean, God accomplished it on your behalf. And it's something that happened to you. And oftentimes you look back on and you say, yes, that did happen. And it brings you great joy and great encouragement, even though you didn't feel it necessarily when it happened to you. And this, this is really important stuff. It's incredibly important. This is not just some theological abstract stuff. 
You know, I kind of feel like I did a disservice to the book of Ephesians in a way because I said chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal and 4 to 6 are practical. But the reality is that all theology is practical. Because theology is how I understand and how I view God, and that greatly impacts how one lives. So all theology is practical, and this stuff is immensely important. And I was reminded of that again this week. I received an email Monday morning from someone in our church letting me know that a gentleman that I had recently visited in the hospital had uh, passed away after a hard bout with cancer. And when I went to see this gentleman a few weeks ago, he had just been told that this cancer was about to take his life. And so I went into the hospital, this man in his late 40s, married with four beautiful kids. And I came and I sat down by his bed and and, and everybody in the hospital room kind of left. And we just started talking. And we just talked about life. And this gentleman shared with me that this was not his first bout with cancer. And that in a previous bout with cancer, he had really struggled with God. And, and, and dealt with anger and dealt with a numbness and an indifference towards God and what he perceived as him turning his back on God. And so here he had been told that he's about to die and he's concerned and he's stressed and he's a little bit like, I, am, am I saved? And so we sat down in that hospital room together and I opened up my Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Right here. And I said, brother, this is what God wants you to know about your salvation. And I read Ephesians 1, substituting the word you for our. And I want you to listen to it. It's amazing. And this is what I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you, my brother, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose you, In him, before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon you in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on you. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to you the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him you have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that you, my friend, who were to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. And I looked at him and I said, brother... God chose you before time began. God died for you on a cross and was raised from the dead. 
And he has sealed you with the promised spirit that he will never leave you, brother. He will never let go of you. And we were, you know, crying and, and praying and thanking God together. Because when you think about God's work of salvation, the only appropriate response is praise. And that's why if you look carefully at Ephesians 1, you'll notice after he speaks of God the Father, he says, to the praise of his glory. And after he speaks of God the Son, he says, to the praise of his glory. And he says, and after he speaks of the Holy Spirit, he says, to the praise of his glory. And we have the opportunity to live a life that is one long praise song. Where we, as the people of God, and dwelt by the very spirit of God, have the opportunity to be the presence of God on an unbelieving world that desperately needs the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's who we get to be as his church. And that's who we are as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for you are worthy of praise. God, we so often think of our salvation or the Christian life and we think of it consistently as something maybe that's up to us. That I've got to grind it out. And yet, God, your word teaches us that you have secured our salvation. You have sealed us by your spirit. You indwell our very midst. And though we may grieve the spirit, you never leave us nor forsake us. And we don't have to walk around like children wondering if they're going to get to sleep in daddy's house. Our room will always be there. So God, would you help us, all of us, and I'm at the front of the line, God. Would you help me fully embrace what it means to be your child, what it means to have your presence inside of me, your very spirit? God, would you help us be people that walk by the spirit? God, I thank you so much for the life that you've given us, for the eternal life that you have secured for us. God, would you help us love you? Would you help us worship you? And even our love and worship is only possible because you've come to live inside of us. It's mind-blowing. So God, would you fill us with your spirit that we may enter into this world and bring you great glory and praise as we point others to the work of Jesus Christ our Lord, who hung on a cross for the sins of the world and who was raised from the dead, bringing new life, new hope, and hope eternal. God, we thank you for that. And God, finally, I thank you for this church and the opportunity to be a part of a body of believers. God, would you help us encourage one another and stimulate one another to follow you? We thank you for the fact we get to go to a picnic which in itself is not something super spiritual, but oh, it's the family of God gathering in fellowship, loving one another, 
encouraging one another. Beautiful. So thank you for your church. Thank you for this church. But most of all, we thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who bled and died and rose from the grave. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.